0: All right, guys, we'll go ahead and get started Um, and we open in prayer. Father, we are grateful this morning that we have the privilege of considering you and your word and how all of this applies to the human heart and to our particulars of our lives. And we just ask that you give us wisdom and discernment in Christ's name. amen. Amen okay so last week we emphasized um, the authority of scripture in soul care there are so many voices in our culture that are telling us what the problem is and uh, giving us the prescription for cure and um, our our presupposition in uh, biblical counseling is that the Bible answers those questions and rather than proof texting and using scripture as an encyclopedia we we talked about Uh, the Bible as our lens, the Bible interpreting everything that that we experience, everything that we see, everything that we discuss with others. And I've given you a handout um, that does give some of the questions that I emphasized last week uh, that are just good questions to dig a little bit deeper uh, to get an understanding of uh, what's actually going on with someone. It is always helpful, I think, in in ministering to, to others when I'm asking these kind of questions I really am interested in what's going on, but I'm also interested in what the person believes is going on. Everyone that you sit down with to minister to already has a a theory of the issues. Um, And that theory may be driven by Scripture or it may be driven by one of these other uh, voices in our culture. So it's important just to to get a good grasp on where's this person coming from and some of the questions that uh, I've Given you, there can be helpful to that end. Uh, Today, we're going to look at another aspect of Scripture, and I think this is a very important aspect. Um, And then in the coming weeks, we're going to start digging into the details of God and how He is relevant in soul care. We're going to look at human nature and what motivates people, what makes people tick. And towards the end of this class, we'll actually do some case studies together where we'll. Talk through that, Um, but today I want to talk about the use of Scripture in soul care, because uh, when we when we decide to sit down with someone and we are relying on the Bible as our our source as our foundation, we have to ask the Lord to give us very humble hearts in doing that, because uh, we could be very abusive with a very important and powerful book. and so today we're going to emphasize that. I want to start with a few quotes here. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, in order to be able to expound the scripture, you will need to be familiar with the commentators. A glorious army, let me tell you, whose acquaintance will be your delight and profit. Um, Spurgeon just pointing to the fact that we, uh, we need the counsel of other scholars in our lives to really understand what the Bible Is saying, so commentaries are a very important part of our work. Um, D.A. Carson said this make a mistake in the interpretation of Shakespeare's plays, falsely scan a piece of Spenserian verse, and there is unlikely to be an entailment of eternal consequence. But we cannot lightly accept a similar laxity in the interpretation of Scripture. We are dealing with God's thoughts. We are obligated to take the greatest pains to understand them (laughs) truly and explain them clearly. Um, And then George Carlin, not the greatest theologian in the world, (laughs) but this statement is true. Religion is is just mind control. And so we don't want to fall into that category where we're simply using Scripture as a means to control people, as a means to manipulate people, as a means to um, beat people up, Bible thumping, Very often when I'm working with someone and and if they're wrestling with a particular passage or maybe they're wrestling in their own faith, uh, we wrestle together. Rather than me just uh, force something down their throat, I want to know why are you struggling with this particular passage? Why are you struggling with this particular truth? Uh, Let's take the next few meetings and talk about that. Because that's an important aspect of the change process rather than just legalistically forcing um, Scripture upon them. I want to know what's the tension and what's creating it. Um, Revelation 22, 18 and 19 says this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And obviously, that's a very specific um, passage about Revelation. But the spirit of John's warning, I think we are wise to heed as people interested in using Scripture in ministry. Um, when, we are, when we're using the Bible, it's a very sacred thing, and we, and we want to be careful. Um, all the books in the Bible are as equally sacred as Revelation. Therefore, the spirit of John's warning merits our attention and is affirmed elsewhere in the Old and New Testament. So I'm going to read three passages, and I'm sure I'm going to ask a question, and there's probably uh, good answers to this question, many answers to this question, but I'm looking for a very specific answer. And um, so I'll, I'll read the passages, ask the question. Let's just talk about this for a moment. Um, well, actually, as I read this, um, what is the similarity that, that we are hearing in each of these passages? What, what is a the theme that is arising out of each? <clears throat> this is Proverbs 35 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And then 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So what, what is the theme that that you hear in each of those passages?
1: Don't mess around with the word of God.
0: Yeah. Yes. Anything else? Selfishness
1: Mm -hmm.
0: throughout all those passages. And is is there a relational imperative in each of those? I mean, when it says we'll be rebuked, who, who is that pointing to? But who's the rebuker? God. And so something beautiful that we can be mindful of that can help us stay humble and discerning is to recognize that when we're relating the word of God on a horizontal level, we're simultaneously operating and and relating on a vertical level. We're always relating to God. When I bring the scripture to bear into someone's life, I'm, I'm relating to that person, but I'm also relating to God. Um, And the the reality is that I'm going to relate to the Lord God in that moment as his faithful ambassador or as his enemy. And that's how I try to keep myself in check is to realize, man, when you're because sometimes we have to bring some very difficult truths to people. And sometimes we have to grapple through some very complex issues with people who are hurting, who are suffering. And I don't want to be cavalier about that. And so it's important for me to recognize there's there's not just the two of us in this room. God is here. And um, I'm either loving him in the way that I'm expressing his word or I'm not loving him. And I want to always um, be found loving the Lord when I'm ministering his word. The writer of Proverbs in the passage we just read is... Uh, points to a person committed to rebuking those who mishandle his word. Uh, In the second passage, Paul is encouraging Timothy to handle the word of truth wisely for the purpose of presenting himself approved by God. There's a personal relationship there. James warns of a higher standard by which teachers of the word will be judged by God. And so as you step into this type of ministry, uh, always let that be at the forefront of your mind so that you can love people well. Because what you'll understand, uh, or what you may already understand, is when you step into people's lives who are struggling, they begin to look up to you. Uh, sometimes there's a power differential that, that can develop in their minds where you're the, the, the quote, expert, and they're the one in need. And uh, we have to be very careful that, first of all, we, we try to push against that possibility by always Disclosing to them that we have feet of clay just like they do, uh, but because that's just the nature of of the helping ministry, um, we want to always make sure that that we are asking the Lord to humble our hearts in that regard, and not allow ourselves to become prideful. Because as you offer counsel, as you offer ministry to people, and you begin to see the Word of God flourishing in their lives, you begin to see them overcoming battles that maybe they have fought for years it's it's there's a temptation there to take ownership of that as though you are the agent of change there or that you are the one that did something special in their lives um which then gives you a a false sense of power and then you begin to use the word in this cavalier way and we just want to always be very careful that we're using scripture in a way that honors the lord loves the lord and never puts us center stage where god is always center stage um Again, D.A. Carson, it is is too—it is all too easy to read the traditional interpretations we have received from others into the text of Scripture. Then we may unwittingly transfer the authority of Scripture to our traditional interpretations and invest them with a false, even an idolatrous degree of certainty. So even when we're coming to Scripture with sound theology, we have to be very aware and mindful of our own presuppositions, our own biases, Um we may be coming uh, to people who don't really share our form of theology or may not be aware of a reformed theology. And and we don't want to put our theology to the side. Our theology must drive what we're doing. Um, But we want to be careful and sensitive that, that uh, others have presuppositions about the Bible. I, I minister to a very broad spectrum of denominations. Um, And we just have to learn how to be creative in how we're bringing sound theology into that situation without slamming people down with a hammer, okay? Um, And we need to become uh, wise uh, stewards of Scripture in terms of exegesis. Um, What is exegesis of the Bible? What does that term mean? Letting
2: the Bible speak
1: for itself.
0: Letting the Scripture speak for itself. Okay, other thoughts? I was
1: going to say but bringing to lie. Bringing
0: to life. Okay.
1: Interpretation
0: of yes. Um, simply put, it is a term that refers to the critical interpretation of a specific text, verse, or verses in the Bible. If we exegete a passage well, then we will interpret the passage in a manner that most closely reflects the original meaning the author intended. Another word is is eisegesis. What is that? Anyone know? Yes. It goes back to that quote that Carson mentioned. Eisegesis is reading your own interpretation into the text. Versus taking the text for what it is and, and pulling what what is there out, we bring our own ideas to the text. And we'll go over a very common example that I see in counseling. Okay. Um, in 1977, when Christian psychology and Christian counseling was really coming onto the scene, eisegesis uh, was flourishing in the self-help world of of the Christian community. Uh, And a guy named J. Robertson McQuilkin noted this, uh, but if the hermeneutic of scripture, the basis of interpreting scripture is from the perspective of cultural anthropology or naturalistic psychology, scripture is no longer the final authority. (coughs) Cultural relativism, environmental determinism, and other anti-biblical concepts seep in and gradually take control. So we're, we're coming back to this reality that everyone that you sit down with has heard many voices about who they are, what their problem is, and what they should do about it. And we have to be careful also that because we are also subject to those voices. And we want to make sure that we're not letting secular ideas interpret who people are. Or we don't want to bring those secular ideas onto Scripture and then interpret Scripture in light of those secular ideas. Um, here's a huge example mark twelve twenty nine through 31 the most important is this hero israel the lord our god the lord is one and you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength the second is this you should love the lord as yourself there is no other command greater than these so you should love the lord with all your heart with all your mind all your strength and you should love your neighbor as yourself How many commands are in that passage? Ten.
2: (laughs) Summary of the Ten Commandments.
0: True, very true. That was a good spin. (laughs) But it's true. Sounds like two. Sounds like two.
1: Yes, love God, love
0: your neighbor. Okay. What do you think? how do you think some people tend to interpret that in our culture? How many commands? Love three. <laughs> and what are Self. the love yourself? It's a huge thing in our day. Okay? Self-esteem uh, has crept into the church, and it's a, a very distorted understanding of who we are. And if you read the research, uh, do you know one of the, some of the populations with the highest self-esteem or one of the populations with the highest self-esteem prisoners who have committed violent crimes Uh, when they've given uh, self-esteem assessments very often they are the ones that that hold the highest self-esteem when the the culture the secular culture tells us that generating a high self-esteem is supposed to prevent crime what the research is showing us is that the criminals are the ones that really think very highly of themselves Um, research is also showing us that the more that we are teaching self-esteem in the classroom grades are plummeting uh, where this is really emphasized and this is because rather than learning math and science uh, that hour is being taken up by a class that teaches children not to think poorly of themselves should they fail and so it's really the research is going against what the self-esteem movement has shown us And that movement really came as uh, a push against Christianity. Uh, Nathaniel Brandon was the guy that wrote the first major book on self-esteem. And the whole book is about we are uh, evolved animals and uh, we need to get rid of the religious rhetoric that makes us feel guilty and we need to learn to really think highly of ourselves. So this idea crept into the Christian community. Uh, There's there's one book... um, by a guy named Trobich and it's entitled Love Yourself. It was a Christian book. Um, And in that he says, only when I have accepted myself can I let go of it and can I become selfless. And there are many books, very popular books in the Christian community that would buy into this idea that until you learn to love yourself, you can't love God and other people. And um, this is very dangerous. Uh, Anthony... Hokema says this the term self-love may imply that we are to love what we ourselves are by nature apart from God's grace love of this kind is next door to pride a Christian ought therefore not to indulge it and what what the authors did in the Christian self-help community is they took all of these theories of of self-esteem and they began to forced them onto that passage love God as your uh, love God and love your neighbor as yourself and rather than just seeing the two commands which is all that is, is that is there they added a third one uh, and it wasn't because that's what the Bible teaches it's what the culture was teaching and they forced that onto the interpretation of that particular passage um, Another theologian said this the words as yourself do not contain a duty of self-love but rather rest on observable fact. We do in fact love ourselves and the intensity of that self-love can serve as a measurement for our love towards our neighbor. And we can compare this to the ethic of the teachings of scripture in Mark eight thirty-four and 35. And he, Jesus, called to them, to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And then in Luke nine twenty three, and he Jesus said to all, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me." John three thirty, uh, this is John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then Paul, for, uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty one. I protest, brothers. By my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. And so when you you look at the ethic of Scripture as it regards self, uh, it's not one where we are to be puffed up and anchor our sense of hope in how good we feel about ourselves. We actually find great life in dying to self and living for someone much greater than us.
2: I have a question. I agree with you completely about <coughs> puffed up and, and puffing up our self esteem, but I'd like to explain. One, it sounds to me like those verses are not really speaking of low self esteem; they're speaking of sacrifice. It's true, but but uh, on but can you speak to the opposite side of we typically would say? We don't want people to have low self-esteem, to think so poorly of themselves that they... And how do you yeah. put that into that?
0: And so it, this goes uh, to the idea that in order to really understand who we are, we always have to look at ourselves in light of God. And so we are created creatures, uh, created in the image of the Lord. And so we have significance. We have uh, value and beauty and... And worth because we belong to God. Um, when we think of our, when we root our identity in the gospel, there's there are many beautiful things there that remind us um, who we are. But it's not in and of ourselves. It's not who we are by nature so much <clears throat> as it is who we are in Christ. Um, we are righteous. We are holy. Uh, we bear His perfection because we're united in Him. And so really, when we when we contemplate who we are, uh, it shouldn't cause us to navel-gaze and look at all of our qualities and and then become uh, what uh, the King James Version would say, swollen with conceit. Uh, but rather, when we think of ourselves, who should it point us to immediately? Christ.
1: Jerry, I've gotten a lot out of Tim Keller's book, The Freedom from Self-Forgetfulness. It's a great little book not a long read, but yeah. it addresses exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about. both ends of
2: the spectrum, <clears throat> one end of the arrogant, prideful person who's, oh, I've got my self-esteem attached, you know, check me out. And then on the other end of the person wallowing in sort of self-pity. Um, but both are elevating the self.
0: That's right.
2: Um, and so, uh, someone with low self-esteem who's sort of ready and willing to kind of unload mm-hmm. their weariness upon anybody that would come next to them. In a strange way it's exercising this form of pride and, and elevation and worship itself. Mm-hmm. And I think as an example to one point when um, Paul says wretched man that I am, I don't think we would excuse him of, well maybe somebody would say, "Well, no, Paul you're really not that bad. You know, Look at all these things he's done. Mm-hmm. But he's not interested in that. It's an interest in turning the corner on that statement to But thanks be to God. Mm-hmm. And that's so right. I think that's the to me that's the rhetoric that you're talking about. such a man that I am but thanks be to God. And if those two things are in our mind then we're seeing ourselves as redeemed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we have new <coughs> eyes to look upon ourselves um, really not a performance oriented examination of self but more about identity and uh recognizing ourselves as a child of God. Um, and I in my own, I mean, I can think of many times how damaging it is for somebody trying to convince you that you're better than you really are. Yes. Things aren't as bad, <coughs> if you're get better, if you just things will come around and those kind of conversations are usually not very helpful.
0: That's great. It's very good thoughts. Let me just summarize what he said for the recorder here. Um, the idea that a pers- pride takes various forms. One of those is the, the very arrogant form of self-esteem, where I'm the center of the world and everyone in the room knows it. The other form of pride and self-centeredness, and we could say esteeming the self, is when we are in this place of wallowing in our pity. Because when we're in that place, who's the, who's the focus? Self. And then the the passage uh, that you mentioned where Paul is speaking in Romans chapter 7. Oh, uh, wretched man that I am. And and he asked a question right before that because he's really <coughs> struggling. Who is going to save me from this body of death? "O wretched man that I am. Thanks be to God uh, through Jesus Christ. So that's the perfect example of what we were just saying. That when he was really uh, contemplating his own heart in the struggle that was going on inside it immediately pointed him to another person um and then and then it was at that point that he could say uh, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus um so that's that's a very good point this spectrum that and we don't want to get into this idea that when a person is feeling poorly about themselves that we just we're there to pump them up to make them feel good about themselves we need to really ask Big questions about what 's going on there that uh, you know, and in suffering we, we have to be extremely sensitive um, because all of us in this room, when we 're in a, a significant amount of suffering, at least for me uh, i 'm going to tend to want to make that about me i 'm going to get caught up in my own tiny little circle that 's just a fact, and I need someone to come. into my world and speak into me not to make that circle even smaller to make me feel good about myself but to broaden that circle and say hey uh what is what is what is going on right now in terms of God's providence in your life and how is his mercy unfolding even in this moment and how is he strengthening you um and where are you wrestling with God you know you go to Lamentations 3 it's a uh, It is a graphic picture of the prophet Jeremiah. And he's saying things like God has put arrows into his kidneys and he's making him chew on gravel. It's a a very difficult moment. And we need to allow people to wrestle in that way. But then there's this transition period in Lamentations when he said, but then I remembered this and I had hope. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. And so we we see this cadence all throughout the Bible that there's Jeremiah, legitimate suffering, and we need to allow people to legitimately suffer without slapping them down with a a nice promise in some superficial way. We want to engage that suffering, but we don't want to just start speaking into their pity and and have them look at themselves more and how special they are. I don't think that's the the greatest need in the moment. The greatest need in the moment is join them in that suffering, weep with those who weep, Uh, wrestle in that moment but then somewhere asking even in our minds as we're listening Holy Spirit open a door in this moment give me the right words to say that would help us transition this very difficult conversation to your goodness and your faithfulness and your mercy
3: Um, that's what I was going to say you know when I have friends or people that are close to me that are down I always do that same thing I talk ask for the Spirit to come into me or even if I don't actually say, "Holy Spirit, talk to me," I'll, you know, I'll try to meditate for a moment and get myself closer to God, you know, so that God will give me the word. So the words are not mine; the words are coming from the Spirit. And I've noticed that I get a way different response, and the things that I say, um, the words that I go to in the Bible are completely different when I take just those few seconds. To do that versus when I just start talking, mm-hmm. you know, like as soon as they're done talking, I just want to hurry up and comfort them, or I just right. want to hurry up and make them stop bringing my spirit down, you know, and so I just hurry up and talk. The response is totally different. The words that I say are totally different than when I just take those few moments, even if I don't say Holy Spirit, even if I just call out to God in my heart. Mm-hmm. you know to be with me and to, to help me yes you know it's it's incredible
0: and and as as a counselor that sits with people every week that is the most important thing for me to be doing in the hours that I spend with people is asking the lord for help um, because sometimes I I recognize in my own life that I can I can get caught in this kind of cookie cutter uh way of dealing with people sort of applying the same stuff over and over and sometimes i mean that's okay but always asking the lord to to guide my words and 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 not jumping in and just saying what comes on on the top of my head and and you guys want to realize also that the joining process of looking someone in the eyes and just listening Mm -hmm. uh that alone is getting them outside of themselves in some ways and that they're they're relating to you they're they're sharing with you. Their hearts are um, mending with yours, and it's just kind of pulling them out of themselves and giving them opportunity to share. Um, did you Did you have a comment?
1: Oh, actually, you uh,
3: actually because I was saying kind of validate it first, and then uh, yeah, and then, uh, see from that perspective. I guess.
1: Yes. Yeah, I, I don't want to slow the class, and we may talk about it later. But one thing I've been dealing with is another form of. I only can attribute it to pride, but when someone close passes and the family doesn't even tell you about it, you know, I had one of my groomsmen die of cancer mm. in six months, and his wife never even called me. Mm. And I can't—I I wonder why? Why don't you want to have your support mm. group there? Mm. And I can only attribute it to some kind of pride and <coughs> not wanting to know that I'm hurting, mm. and, and maybe later.
0: Yeah. You know, th- it may be a very separate thing, but <clears throat> my sister two years ago um, uh, bore a child who had trisomy 18, and that baby lived about 10 minutes. Very dark. Probably the darkest experience I've ever experienced in my life. Um, but I remember watching her just close everyone off. Grief. People respond in, in very, very different ways. Some people need to be around everyone, some people close themselves off and that's not good. But um, pride I, I be
1: pride is what you're saying. It might just be a real intense. It's
0: reason. just absolute yeah, devastation. Uh, and there could be pride there, but when people lose a loved one like that, that there's just a myriad of ways that they respond and sometimes people really do isolate. Um so this idea, this this small example of how scholars in psychology use the self-esteem literature to infuse into the Bible something that it did not say is a great lesson, and we need to make sure that we're looking for that kind of thing on any topic when we're dealing with the Bible. That we're when we're sharing scripture, that we're not giving platitudes from some self-help book, that but but we're truly drawing out what the Bible is telling us in this particular passage, and um, so I've given. I'm going to read over some some things that you can. You, you may be familiar with these things, but it's always good to be reminded of them. And these are all in the handout. But what is what is what are some helpful steps to doing good exegesis? Um, number one, select and identify your passage. Start by browsing the whole book to see the whole picture of what is going on. So it's very important that when you're reading a verse of scripture or you're using a a section of a particular chapter um, are you familiar with what the entire book says are you familiar with the themes of what Romans is about or what Colossians is about Um, because that that will definitely influence how you're interpreting the passage Um, they were on that back chair no, no more. Okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. that's okay. That's all right. Um, if you didn't get one, just let me know and I'll bring some extras next week. Uh, explore the general meaning of the passage. What does it say? What is it? Who is the author? What is the intent of the passage? What is the major theme of that particular passage? And what is the storyline uh, in which that passage is uh, found? Number three, explore the specific meaning of the passage. How is the passage arranged? What is the sequence of thought? What are the context and or the background? Look at the grammatical structures such as nouns, verbs, etc. Examine the significance of individual words and phrases. Look at other translations. What are the intentions and propositions? What are the problems and the solutions? Are there any theological terms that need to be researched? That's always good. If you don't know a word or if you don't know um, a a specific meaning of of something it's always good that's where we go back to Charles Spurgeon and he said uh, you know the commentaries are very important to our study because there are scholars that have gone before us that have put a lot of time and energy into (coughs) writing uh, what they believed was the most accurate interpretation of a particular passage Um, explore the context what is the historical setting what is the literary setting? What is going on preceding and following the text? What was going on at that time of history? Who is the author and what does he bring to the passage? When and where was the book written? To whom was the book written? What are the cultural considerations? What are the relationships to other passages? What are the facts? <coughs> and how do they compare to your opinions? Number five, explore the contents. What are the different topics involved and how do they relate? Are there phrases or words repeated? Why are they repeated? What are the ethical teachings? What are the precepts? What do you recognize and what do you need to research? So, you know, moving into the lives of people through soul care, and I've been doing this a long time, but it's constantly pressing us into researching Scripture at a deeper level, um, which is good for us. We're always learning something new about the Word. We're always learning something new about God. Put it all together. Make sure you do not spiritualize something that is not there. Make sure not to allow your experience to dictate your interpretation or teaching. Make sure not to justify your opinions by twisting scripture to fit your opinion. Make sure not to make dogmatic statements that are not justified, such as the way of dress, going to movies, etc. Um, and then here are some tips that uh, Darwin, he, he helped um, edit my book on the theology and here are some things that he added to this um, ask questions what is the theme of the passage what is it really about what is the context of the verse I'm studying what do all the particular words notice every word by emphasizing them and, and phrases mean what do I learn from the connections between phrases and what is the flow of thought other useful tools are to read the notes in your study bible if you don't have a study bible uh, get one Uh, ESV or NIV, he recommends. Use the cross-references in your study Bible. Always compare Scripture with Scripture. Again and again, other passages that talk about similar subjects will help you understand a passage you are studying. This is one of the most important things you will do. Closely related to the cross-references, look up important words from your passage in the concordance in the back of your study Bible where you will find other passages in which that same word is used. Look up difficult words in a dictionary or use the articles in the back of your study Bible. The ESV has excellent articles on Bible doctrine and Bible ethics that will provide much help on many subjects. Write down what you do understand about the passage as you make observations. Write down questions about what you don't understand. Ask your mate, your parent, your pastor, your leader, or Sunday school teacher about things you simply cannot understand. And eventually, buy good commentaries recommended by your leaders that can give you further help in particular books of the Bible you want to study. And while that that might seem um, academic, uh, all we're emphasizing today is when we step into soul care or biblical counseling, whatever word we want to use, we want to make sure that we are being good stewards of God's eternal truth and we want to recognize the implications that if if we aren't good stewards number one we are pushing against God we're abusing his words we're, we're using his words to manipulate people in ways that are sinful and then secondly when we do if we are guilty of that kind of thing then we're we're, we're abusing another human being we're harming another human being and and for me, uh, that's critical. You know, I think when I was younger, uh, as a counselor, I I found um, maybe pride in being able to give advice. Uh, here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. But over time, I've uh, the Lord has helped me to to back up on just being an advice giver, and learn how to help people. Wrestle with the scriptures themselves, and make sure that I know enough about the scriptures that I'm help helping guiding them along. Um, and uh, so, even if you have an answer from scripture, the way something should should or should not be. For example, um, <clears throat> someone comes to me, and it happens all the time, and, and they're wanting divorce. Um, I'm probably not going to be the most effective person in their life if I just immediately go legalistic on them and tell them, no, 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 absolutely not, period, and until you change your mind, don't come back. Um, If that person is adamantly set on divorce and they do not have a biblical reason um, and they don't come back, then how much have I really helped them just by giving them that advice? Uh, Hour one. Um, Are you going to...
2: Reformed theology might be uh, needing to be extra careful about particular doctrines when we approach people. In your experience, is there anything that's particular to the sort of Reformed theology that we need to be really, really careful about
0: um, Well,
2: you've experienced in counseling people?
0: So I will tell you, let me go back to the divorce thing no, and then I'll sure. come right to that. So in that situation, I want to know why this person wants... A divorce I want to know the backstory I want to know where they're suffering I want to know are they involved in another situation with someone else that, that is contributing to this which is often the case um, when a person anytime a person utters to you I've fallen out of love with my spouse for me red flags go up that someone else is in the picture not always but most most of the time but then on a topic like divorce, you'll never hear me in a counseling session say, you, you do have biblical grounds, go find a lawyer. I always, always, always say, we need to talk to your pastor. Your pastor is the one responsible to help you make that decision, not me. I'm not your spiritual leader. I'm a servant of the Lord, just like you. Uh, and we need to get that individual involved. And our church here is the best church in all of the Metroplex. <laughs> and I deal with lots of them. To handle that kind of thing. So, entrust whoever you're caring for if you run into a situation like that, trust the elders because they're amazing in dealing.